But I do wonder what it will be like. I'm sure everyone's having these conversations, but like when we go back to traveling and hanging out, if it's just going to be like full on, like I want to party every other day. Well, the the book that I was talking about talks about that too. And there's a lot of history, you know, to, to call on. And obviously when we're in this pandemic situation, it's the ultimate like de-risk situation. Everyone sure. gets incredibly less risky with their money, with their social interactions with, you know, their sexual activity with everything. And then as pandemics end, we don't just go back to a normal amount of risk. Historically, we actually go to like an extreme level of risk. And so I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, risky behavior socially, economically, people are going to want to go out, party, have fun, you know, kind of get all of that out of their system that they've been holding in for the last two, three years when, when this I is hope all that, over. I just, I just hope there's more leniency about showing up to work like an hour late. <laughs> I think, you know, and I don't work out of an office or do anything like that, but I, I got to imagine that this is going to change that culture a lot because... It, it already has, definitely. It's, it's totally doable to work in a quasi your own terms, but also in the office structure where you can you know, be on email, but mm-hmm. go to the office at 11 o'clock and then have your FaceTime, but maybe not go on a Thursday and take the day to work from home that day, like a little bit more fluid. I think there's a lot of people who don't have to work in physical, like service jobs or jobs where you have to be there in person who probably hated going to the office. I am right. thankfully not, not one of them, but I, I've had jobs where I hated going to the office and in that situation, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm working from home. I yeah. am never going back. Like I've proved that I can do my job from home. So I'll, I am not going back to fucking Bloomberg, uh, like swiping right. in and milling around that ridiculous sixth floor, whatever. Like, I don't want to see these people. I just want to stay home. <laughs> well, and the bullshit of, of being in an office in certain dynamics, and I think every company is probably different, but with certain types of businesses and certain types of companies... I feel like the distractions of being there actually probably drive productivity down versus being able to work on your own schedule with your own structure. If you're a motivated, successful person, you know how to set yourself up to get the work done that you need to do. Also, potentially, it exposes all the people who like maybe weren't doing that much work and were kind of just like slipping in between the cracks of of accountability. And by being in an office, you are like, hi, I'm here. I've... I've checked into work today. I'm like typing on my computer. I am producing work. I am exercising my work controls, whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, if you're working from home, it's like, hey, what's um, what's Bill doing? I haven't like gotten an email from him in three days. It's like, uh, we don't know what he does. We have we don't know what he's been doing for three years. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. So, so for people that don't know, you're a former journalist turned comedy writer, producer. Uh, very active Twitter vigilante. Um, (laughs) You know, how do you feel about where we're at now versus where we have been the last four years as we've changed administrations? And because you've been a guy who's really been on the forefront of trying to call out the media and hold people accountable for the mess that we've been in the last four years. And I'm curious how you're feeling right now it seems like you've had a stressful few years. The answer I thought is like uncertain and just it's equally weird. It's equally strange. The, the, the pandemic 
made um, the way that we all consume media uh, heightened in a lot of ways. And certainly there were things um, going on in, in media before the pandemic that like, you know, was worthy of criticism. And then during the pandemic, it, every, I, I just feel like at least for the first few months, everyone was watching the news all the time. Like everyone was at home. Everyone was watching the news, reading the news. Like people were watching cable news who would never watch cable news in their life. So in that sense, I think it increased the way it increased the amount of news consumption we all got, um, which can be a really good thing. But in terms of like where we are versus where we were, I don't actually know. Uh, And I haven't, I haven't been in the news industry in several years. And I, it, it just from as a consumer of news, it feels it feels like people are kind of feeling it out. Um, I, I wish I had like a concrete, tangible answer on that. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What's, what's the best way to consume news these days? Cause you said, okay, more people are consuming news in the pandemic, but when the structure of news is absolutely chaotic and actually the incentive system for news organizations is, is profit as opposed to, you know, facts or anything that you would think would be important what's the best way to actually get news these days it's a great question i mean the best answer is probably vary your sources um which isn't particularly helpful one thing that i i do i think i I hope this is right but i follow individual uh reporters who i really trust and and like they're reporting on specific things i think a lot of the ways that um, news or news outlets work is that I mean this is definitely how it works is like you can't put everything in your story you can't put everything on the air like you only have two minutes on the air you only have 1500 words in a story 800 words whatever it is so you have all this leftover stuff and uh, like social media is a great place to put it so follow the people I don't want to tell anyone like follow this person follow this person but yeah right in the in the process of like how you are you know whether it's like reading uh reading the new york times or the boston globe whether it's watching cnn or um or like uh abc uh evening new world news whatever it is that you see and you're like that person did a really good job explaining um why vaccines are being delayed or why um why saudi arabia is like not cooperating with the, the united states on the khashoggi report whatever it is follow that person because that person is going to be is more likely to be re- reliable consistently and you can kind of like assess that uh and also it's just easier like you don't have to wait for you know you don't have to wait for them to like come back on the new like social media is great for uh, reporters to kind of just like dump their notebooks out so in that sense i feel like that's a good way to stay on top of things um but people don't have a lot of time to do that and i i totally get that there's you know listening to the radio is like a great way to get news if you're driving but like people aren't really driving anymore watching tv is a great way to get news if you're watching the right thing at the right time but like that's not always the case um a lot of times the best way to get news is to actively seek it out like if you if you really admire also i'll say like you know one one reporter i I really admire is um who i've been following just because i've been following him today is dave weigel at the washington post who's been covering the cpac uh nonsense and he has like excellent perspective and reporting on a lot of this stuff. So like I will follow him. I will look for his like specific stories, but that takes like a lot of effort. And I don't know if people 
have that effort. And that's like, that's really hard. There are also, there's a ton of podcasts that do news like recaps and stuff. And I have to believe that that's like a more thorough way of digesting stuff. It's not as immediate, which is fine. Um, but that does seem to be like a pretty thoughtful way. That's like a nice thing to come out of. Like, you know, everyone has a podcast. I say that with no, uh, no sense of irony, obviously. Uh, but those, that, that medium really has benefited news, I think, because it gives you time to digest. Um, you can have extended interviews with people. That's kind of nice. Um, so yeah, yeah and the, I guess, it, especially because of the pandemic, like we were talking about podcasts have become more popular. News podcasts have also become more popular. And that is, uh, that's probably a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, well, I feel like there's a need for what we were talking about earlier, long-form conversations and digesting information on a deeper level because so much of it has been the headline and the tweet Mm -hmm. and the 140-character summary of what's going on. And when we talk about how do you, what's the best way to consume news, a lot of that isn't even up to you because all of us are looking at the trending topics and what's going on. And so we're going to consume a big percentage of our news whether we like it a lot or not if we're just interacting on social media i mean don't you feel that like you i mean i'll ask you like what do you do because i feel like a lot of people who are in my circle who aren't in news um get news from their friends uh which is almost like a like a romantic callback to the to the way that stories were passed down from person to person thousands of years ago or whatever um but it's like someone will be like hey did you see this and then you go look it up you know uh that to me seems like a very consistent thing that people have which is like sending people links um on text yeah we share stuff a lot yeah Yeah. and that to me is is a really important way of like you trust your friends more than anyone you trust your friends more than you might trust the actual news itself. And if your friend says like, read this story, you will believe it because your friend told you that that's like a very analog social media in a sense, uh, a direct here is, um, I'm, I'm giving you this piece of information to check out. Um, and that to me happens like every morning between like nine and 10 AM where I'm like sending links to people, people are sending me stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious what what you do also. Do you think that that enables like a groupthink type of Maybe. situation? Maybe. I mean, in a weird way, like the worst smears about Obama being a secret Muslim from Kenya were started by email forwards in 2007 that were like from crazy racist people that were just like forwarded around to, you know, the trope is like your crazy uncle or whatever. And like, that is kind of the same thing. But at the same time, you know, I don't trust my crazy racist uncle, but I do trust my friend who lives in Philadelphia and like, he'll text me something, you know, once every couple days, be like, this is insane. Like check out what happened in Philly. And then I'll be like, ah, that is insane. Thank you for sending me that. So in in a way that is like, I mean, it's, it's weird because there's too much news and there's also not enough at the same time. It's kind of always been this yeah. way. Um, so if you're like, you know, reading a newspaper used to be uh, 45 minutes, I can get through the A section and I'll find out everything I need to know. That is definitely no longer the case. And now the way that people consume stuff is like, there's so much out there. I don't have time to read everything, but if someone you trust, if someone in your family or, or one of your friends sends you something that goes right to the top, that's like a recommended thing. You know, it's different than just tweeting it or putting it on Facebook. It's like a personal it's a personal thing. I don't, I don't, yeah, I'm not I think, like endorsing any sort of method of sharing news. I'm just pointing out, I will read Nick's texts to me when he sends them to me. 
Well, that's a really interesting thing that we, we probably don't realize we do so much. You're right. A lot of that information that we're consuming probably does come from the social aspect of it Definitely. because we love sharing these things. Yeah, yeah. And we don't just do it with news. We do it with funny stuff. We do it with, you know, random uh, stuff that we'll see on Instagram even. You know, yeah. the shareability of stuff on Instagram is so huge. Yeah. Um, group chats too. Like group chats are insane. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> we're in this weird, uh, I don't know if you saw, but after the Ted Cruz Cancun scandal, his wife um, was outed in their group chat as being, uh, as texting like, hey, we're going to go to Cancun. Does anyone want to come? And that oh that, that undercut their message that it was like, oh, like this was always going to be like a work from home thing. Like, no, that was bullshit. And so then people right. started talking like, oh my God, like there's a there's a mole in the group chat. And it was like, well, who in your group chat is your, is your mole? And so I saw a tweet. I wish I could credit the person who did this. I forget who it was. Was, but it was like your group chat is only as strong as the number that you have in there that you haven't put in your contacts yet <laughs> like the person you don't know that is the person who's gonna leak the shit <laughs> that's good that's good um yeah the way that i consume news is probably a lot of that we have this family group chat i got a big family as you know and so we, we'll, we'll be sharing random articles here and there mm-hmm. So I'll consume a lot of news like that, a lot from other friends that'll send me things. My manager, Tim, he and I send articles back and forth all the time. Um, and the morning I'll wake up, I'll go uh, get a coffee, drive around, make phone calls. I listen to the five-minute NPR nice. news, hourly news update on Spotify. Nice. And that gives me kind of like the the foundation yeah. to just make me feel like, all right, I know what's going on and if there's anything huge that might have happened i'll be aware i think that's what most people need Um, right they just want like you want the top line uh and if something like strikes you as particularly interesting you'll go deeper on it or if it's like a story you've been following for a few days you'll go deeper on it yeah yeah and and then i i think i actually when i want to go deeper i'll I'll listen to more podcasts i like the daily i like Mm -hmm. you know different podcasts um but more and more i've tried to detach myself from the news cycle and just try and get to a deeper level of kind of what's going on on more of a weekly monthly basis and do that deeper dive you know and try and stay out of the day-to-day components of it especially now that trump is not president yeah i feel a little bit more comfortable a lot of people feel that way i definitely have heard that from a lot of people that's like once he left there didn't seem to be this urgency that was like, okay, I got to watch, I got to watch the news every day. I can take a right. backseat now. Like things, things might be okay. As if watching the news was their way of being like, I'm ready. If anything goes wrong, I am available. I can tweet. I, I am like, let's do it. Let's, let's right. march to the streets. You know? Yeah. So do you, do you think that, um, so just how do you feel about where we're at with news media these days? It seems to me that you have a lot of problems with the I, the, I, the old system of media, or, or maybe not the old system, but the system of the last 10 years that has really... Yeah, I mean, it's it's turned. struggling. Like, And I think people in, in media know that it, it's in this weird place where like you have an entire political party that's like voted repeatedly now, like, we're fine with conspiracy theories, we wanted to overturn the election, like, we are operating in bad faith. And then the media is in this position of being like, well, what do we do with that? Do we, do we keep interviewing these people? Like, we can't say no. We can't just ban an entire political party from the news. That would be insane. And so the alternative is to just keep pretending things are normal. And I I would like to think that there's like a middle ground there, but no one has the answer to it. I mean, I I've I've been kind of on the, on this like uh 
push to stop these, you know, the, the people who push the big lie to stop them from appearing on the news and, and not being confronted about that. That's hard for a lot of people in media because they'll be accused of being biased, which is unfair. If, um, if a news host is interviewing, uh, you know, someone like um, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, and McCarthy says, like, well, this election was stolen, which is a thing that he, he, he is saying, then the news host should, in my view, say, uh, that's a lie. We have to stop this interview. Sorry, we can't expose that. Any, anything else you say is obviously not credible. We can't expose our viewers to that. And, and the interview there, if they did that, the right wing would come after them so hard. Um, and that's dangerous for a, a, a journalist to like expose themselves to that sort of criticism. The right wing is really good at ginning up fake outrage. They pummel people on social media. They tag your boss. They tag your news outlet. Then the news outlet is like, well, do we have to put out a statement? Like, do we stand by this? Like, what are we supposed to do? Then the story becomes about the news outlet none of those people in news want to deal with that. That's like a really tough situation to be in. So they're trying to avoid that. And the alternative just seems to be like, let's just keep pretending everything's normal. So this is obviously a, a moment for for people in those positions um, to figure out what is the balance. Uh, and no one has like, no one has the right answer. I have to assume these conversations are happening. I hope these conversations are happening like internally at places. But I think people are noticing because I mean, it's hard not to notice. It's hard not to, you can't just turn on the TV and be like, why is, why is Steve Scalise on TV? Like, didn't that guy just vote to overturn the election after the Capitol riot? Like he still voted to overturn it. What am I watching right now? So in in a sense, it's, it's deeply effed, but it's also the same type of, um, I guess, attitude that, has been there since Trump ran, which was like, well, he's going to hold a press conference about Obama's birth certificate. And he's going to finally announce that he doesn't believe Obama was born in Kenya. Like this horrible racist smear that has plagued Obama for so long and been used as like a disgusting, a disgusting rallying cry for the Republican, like crazy voters and Trump was going to do a press conference to be like, okay, I don't believe it anymore. And what he did was he put on this like publicity stunt because he knew all the cameras were like, were rolling news was taking it live. So he comes out there and he's like, I'm gonna have a big announcement, but first I want to introduce this person. And then he brings up this, like, I think it was like a world war two veteran or a Korean war veteran or something. And he brought up like all of these military people to endorse him. And like, the news that was taking it live was just like, what are we supposed to do? Like, if we cut away, we might miss the moment where Trump says, I don't believe Obama was born in Kenya anymore. But if they don't cut away, they're putting this like weird, like bad faith endorsement on the air. And that is like, oh God, like, man, you got to pull my teeth to give credit to Trump. I, but like, that is a, he manipulated the media by doing that. He kept doing it. And here we are now, and it feels like the media is still kind of being manipulated by other people in the Republican Party. So if that didn't, if that stunt didn't prompt some sort of conversation, I don't know what would. Certainly, there were conversations that were happening, especially in the in the coronavirus in like May, when Kaylee McEnany became the press secretary, and she outright was just like spreading misinformation and lying, and it was horrible, and like the news outlets stopped taking them live eventually 
which was the, definitely the right thing to do. Um, so those conversations did happen. They happened late. Uh, they stopped taking Trump live too, because he was spreading nonsense about hydroxychloroquine and bleach and all that crap. So eventually they did do that. I guess the hope is that they do it earlier now, but it's hard. I, I think it's hard to make the case for that in a, in an industry that's kind of slow to change. Um, I don't know if that is an accurate description of where no, we I are, hear you. it's, it's complex. Yeah, it's definitely. Obviously yeah. there's, there's no simple answer to it. And I imagine if you were in that room with some of the people who are making those decisions, my guess is you would be pushing for just a no nonsense policy across the board. Just, yeah. And then just cut that, it. Cut and it then off. there's a chance that the news network that if they listen to me, that we might lose our show, we might lose a ton of money. Like, yeah, you right. Know? Right. They go out of business right. and yeah, right. It's weird. There's, there's yeah, consequences and, for every action and this is just a, this is just an example of one part of the, of, of media that like is kind of put in an awkward spot. Um, but the, uh, the other, the like really, really frustrating thing is that like Trump spent four, really six years, uh, demonizing the news industry and characterizing it as fake, uh, and, and going after specific reporters in a bad faith way for their good reporting, going after specific news outlets in a horrible way for their good reporting and calling it all lie, smears, fake, whatever, like you're making up sources, all of everything that Trump said was wrong, but he created an environment in which the news media was despised by almost every Trump supporter. So to come from the other side of that and to also criticize the media is a tricky thing to do because I would like to think that things that we can say about the media are, yeah, they're aggressive, but like they're productive and they're coming from a good faith place, not a bad faith place. But drawing that distinction is easy to do in a, in a podcast. It is hard to do on, on social media, especially at a time when people like people are so uh, like, like hot about everything and they might get the wrong impression. And so I, and at times I'm, I may like, I may not be sensitive to that. Um, that subtlety, which is too bad because you don't want to see someone, you don't want to see like the mob go after someone for the wrong reason. Um, but you do want to see good change. And like happens a lot on social media. We're like, this happened the other day. Someone tweeted, um, uh, a reporter tweeted something that was like quoting, uh, Trump saying like he, he won the election. And I think I, I, it was like a report, an AP report or something. And I like re replied to them and I was like, can you, can we not do this? Like, can we please stop quoting this guy? And then he deleted it and then reposted a thing that was like, uh, Trump repeats his false claim, blah, blah, blah. I was like, thank you. Cool. Okay. That's great. <laughs> I, I feel like that was a good exchange. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does seem like there's starting to be some accountability there. I hope maybe. so. Maybe. You know? I mean, it's... Who knows? Like, and also like Twitter is not a real reflection of life. A lot of, a lot of the media conversations ha happen there because it's first, but it's not like everyone's getting their news on Twitter. It's just kind of like, well, that's a good point. When you're on Twitter, you feel like Twitter is the most important thing oh, in yeah. the world. And you and I are both very active on Twitter in different realms, but we probably both hold a lot of weight as to what's going on on Twitter because we spend a lot of time <laughs> on it and it's important to us. But not everybody's on Twitter. I mean, there's a lot of people on Twitter, don't get me wrong. And it, it moves the needle. No, but there are things that happen on Twitter that like people in the real world don't even know about. And like, I remember there, right. there was like, at some point, like this is before the pandemic when 
I was like, oh man, did you see this like crazy meme? Like, what do you think about it? And they were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, you know, like the meme, like uh, these people tweeted it. And they're like, I've been on Twitter all day. I was like, ah, how do I explain this to you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, back to what we were talking about earlier about like pandemics and how history repeats itself and all this stuff too. Uh, this whole thing that's been happening with people just absolutely becoming so much more polarized sure. and just going to the left and to the right super hard. Obviously, that has happened a million times over the course of history. And then it usually culminates in some big, you know, life-changing event like a war or, sure. you know, in rare cases, some sort of peaceful negotiation. That's what's happening. We're going to get the big peace. It's coming. I can feel it. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's kind of what, what I wanted to ask you is, is like, you know, how do we take this polarization and these mobs of people on, on, on both sides that are just incredibly mobilized on social media? And how do we start to have 80% of us start to have maybe a little bit more middle ground yeah. conversations? Cause there's going to be crazy people. And I think that on the right side, there seems to be a lot more crazy people right now, but how many of those crazy people on the right are doing it because they actually just want to stay in mm -hmm. power. And it's the narrative that they've been pushing because they Definitely. did a risk, you know, a calculation to see that with our constituents, Definitely. this is a way for us to win votes. And as that changes, does the things that they do change? And, you know, for most of them, the answer is probably yes, because a lot of politicians are scum. They'll change if, they, if their voters change, but their voters aren't changing. I think that's what we've, we've just kind of learned. So that's it's what, yeah. It's really right. hard to imagine a world in which all of the bad faith actors in the Republican Party decide, like, we're going to do the right thing right now. <laughs> like I cannot, I really right. cannot imagine I having, they had, January 6th was like the last line. That was it. That was the big one. Like terrorist attack, insurrection, uh, white supremacists storming the Capitol. Like at that point, you should be able to say like, that was bad. And the majority of them said it was good. So there is nothing that could happen that would make them say the right thing. This happens even after like horrible, like tragic in every way school shootings where we're like just people who have no connection to it are watching the news and just like sobbing. And we're all like, that could be someone I know. That could be my kid or that could be my niece or nephew. Oh, this is awful. We have to do something about gun violence. And Republicans are like, we don't want to. Like they'll never do the right thing. So I cannot see a world in which there is some sort of like uh, bringing people together because there is no compromise. <laughs> like there, what, what would even the terms of that be? Like, how yeah. do you, how do you do that? I have no, I cannot even come up with a, a proposition to start with, you know? So, so then where does life go? Where does life go in 10, 20 years, oh, 30 man. years for oh, this country? Man. Do more people start to come over to the side of, you know, people that are maybe in the majority in terms of what they're viewing and how they want the country to It's be. so weird because like more and more people start to think like that and that those kind of crazy ideas become more and more fringe. The, the ideas that I think 10 years ago we would have considered fringe are now so, uh, this different ideas now that we would still consider as crazy are are cemented in QAnon and just the the broader world of Facebook conspiracy theories. Though and, and Newsmax, OAN, Fox News, like all of that is part of this 
conspiracy theory ecosystem, those things are so detached from the world that you and I live in. It, it cannot, it truly cannot coexist. There are, I mean, I don't know if you know people, but like I have friends who have lost family members to QAnon. Uh, I had two cousins. This was like a few years ago before QAnon became as potent as it was now, but two cousins who were like into info wars and stuff. And like, I haven't talked to them since Charlottesville because they were like, we love it. And I was like, you are so psychotic. Like you cannot defend these neo-Nazis. And they were, we're Jewish. They were Jewish. And they were like, oh yeah, this is, this isn't what the media says it is. I was like, all right, get, get the fuck out of here. Like, that's crazy. So these are real things that are tearing families apart. And that in itself, like a Facebook conspiracy theory to destroy a family is as as depressing as you'll see anything happen short of physical violence. You can watch these really good, I think one of the best, uh, two of the best reporters out there right now are a guy named um, Donnie O'Sullivan for CNN and Ben Collins at NBC uh, NBC News. And they do reporting on QAnon uh, as a, a movement and, as, and from a, a very, very like, dark perspective of the people who have been affected by it. And the other day, Doni did a story on um, these, I think it was these two women whose, they they weren't related. There's, I think each of their mothers, I could be getting the detail wrong, but each of their mothers fell to QAnon and it was like an interview with them about how they had lost their mom. And they described it as like, I feel like my, my mom is gone. Like she doesn't really exist. And I was watching this like, days after I was talking to a friend of mine who's kind of going through the same thing. They're not at that stage yet, but he sees it coming and it's brutal. Like it is something that I could never imagine going through because it doesn't make sense to me. Like in my brain, QAnon is obviously nonsense. It's a racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. It involves like fantastical uh, things from like a perverted Bible. It's so gross and so dumb. And yet it is like the most potent thing to stick in America since like Christianity. So how can you have that world on one side, which is no longer fringe, like the Republican party is like, we're fine with this. How can you have that on one side? And then on the other have us, and, and want to come together and say like, well, we see your point. Maybe there's some common ground here. There, there is none. So if the, if the question is where do we go, like I think we just go our separate ways. Yeah, it may be. That may be the conclusion that ends up happening with this kind of chaotic dynamic. It's just sad. Yeah. It's so sad. But, you know, I I think that these things are interconnected on a lot of levels. And I think that there's a big connection to the economic inequality that we have right now and that we've gotten to over the last 20, 30 years to the point where there is so much space between the top, top people who earn money in this country and in this world really and the people at the bottom that it is just completely out of whack and that amount of inequality and lack of opportunity economically for a a big percentage of people I think drives people to fringe ideas um, 
and then you put on top of that, and that that happens historically. It happened in the 1930-45 period, which led to the World War, and this situation is unique because we kind of have this accelerant with social media that we didn't have ever before in history. And so none of us can really understand how that plays out because of that new dynamic, right? That think about what happened. Think about what happened on, um, to your point about social media being an accelerant. Think about what happened on uh, 9-11, that day, that week, that month, that year. And then think about, I mean, you were probably, what, 10, 12? Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was in second grade when 9-11 Okay, so you were seven. Okay, I was, I was, I was 14. Okay. Um, so I remember, like, years went by after that before I first heard about 9-11 conspiracy theories and obviously they were just psychotic uh we get now we we joke about these things as like jet fuel can't melt steel beams right like there's like shit. memes about it like yeah. yeah this was a youtube video that went viral at i i couldn't tell you when it was but it, i think it was like years later i'm sure at some point like there were always sprinklings of uh conspiracy theories about 9-11 maybe in the few months after whatever, like people piecing together news clips, like the same way that when JFK was shot, there are conspiracy theorists, but these things used to take time. That conspiracy theory timeline was compressed in from, from then to now to instantaneous. Like there is no longer an incubation period for a conspiracy theory. When January 6th happened, when the insurrection happened at the Capitol, that is, day during the Capitol attack. There were people on Fox News, on Newsmax, on OAN, on social media instantly saying, this is Antifa. This isn't what you think it is. This is a false flag operation. And you could, uh, maybe if you're being generous, you would say like, well, that's just a few people trying to get attention. On the floor of the House, as they were coming back to vote for certifying the election, that night, Matt Gates gets up there and he says, the Washington Times just reported uh, this really interesting uh, thing about how there's a facial recognition uh, technology company that says some of these people were Antifa. Complete bullshit based on absolutely nothing. And that's a congressman on the floor of the House while the attack is like literally one hour old. Like there's still debris in the Capitol. And he's saying that this this was Antifa. So it took zero seconds for a conspiracy theory to form about what happened. That is the danger of misinformation is that it, it no longer takes time. It just starts at like, as soon as a thing happens, there's another side to it. That's completely false. And that side gets elevated because the misinformation, the lie, the craziness of it is so much more attractive to people who aren't able to process what's real and what's not. That is the the true accelerant, the problem of the accelerant. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, to the things that you're doing on Twitter, right? Using comedy in a way to kind of come at some of these problems and, you know, some of your tweets will go crazy viral and, and you know, it, it actually leads to a broader conversation about the real issues, right? Combating that with, you know, spreading real information through those same channels is something that's super important. It's not as appealing to people. Real information is not as appealing to people. We want 
the sensationalized story, the conspiracy. We, we want to believe that there is some dark, secret society behind something because it makes us feel better about ourselves because we think to ourselves, well, I could be, you know, something if it weren't for all of these gatekeeping situations and, you know, and so we want to believe that as human beings. And so we, we perpetuate these conspiracy theories, you know, a lot of us, but we can hopefully use those tools that, that conspiracy theorists use to also counteract that to a degree. But then also, this is where I think like the economic aspect of it comes in, is that as we get more economically prosperous, people get more access to information, they get more intelligent, they are, you know, less stressed out about where they're going to get their meals or have a shelter. And so we get a little bit better as a society overall, and then those fringe ideas start to become less and less appealing to us, right? And so I think that that might be, uh, and I'm just trying to be optimistic about this because the alternative of it is so dark and who knows where we're going to go. We might go to a very dark place, but that might be a direction that we go here that, that helps us a little bit, you know, and helps a percentage of us get out of those negative loop conspiracy theory, you know, get out of that world. It's almost like, I mean, the uh, pandemic and quarantine kind of uh, aggravates everything. So it definitely worsens um, conspiracy theories. It creates its own conspiracy theory, this idea that COVID isn't real, that masks are liberal conspiracy, that Bill Gates is putting a microchip in the vaccine, whatever. But it also means people have more time to spend on Facebook, spend online doing like looking at stuff that isn't true. I guess in your optimistic reading of the situation, there's an offshoot chance that like when the pandemic is over we spend less time on Facebook and we go outside and we hang out and we see friends. And that means that's less time for people who are susceptible to these poisonous ideas to be exposed to them. That could be great. Uh, and it would be, I mean, the, the shock of a lifetime in my opinion. Yeah. But sure. I'm willing to believe in it. Like I'm willing to hope for it. Well, my it's God. great to hope. It's great to hope. But I mean, we're in a toxic relationship in this country. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but like, what do we do about it? Like, well, that's the thing. Do you, you know? Do we do we stay frozen in this situation, or does it eventually reach? A, it feel a it really feels like the the ultimate person who could be like the empathetic come together person is Joe Biden, and I I think he is a uh, he's he's obviously not as progressive as I would like, but like it's kind of hard to imagine a more empathetic leader during a pandemic than him, and. The response to his uh, election victory was, A, you didn't actually win. Uh, B, you're somehow a socialist that Kamala Harris is controlling like a puppet. Like, it's just, it's so bad. So I don't even know, I don't know what we could have done. I, like, policy stuff aside, like, Biden is a has a tragic history, understands loss and grief uh, more than any elected official I've seen, uh, with the exception of like John Lewis, maybe. And here he is trying to be like, guys, like, I don't, I don't want to do the green new deal. I don't want to do uh, minimum wage hikes. I don't want to do any of that leftist stuff. I 
don't want to do any of the crazy immigration stuff on the right. I don't really want to do anything other than bring people together. I'm going to use the word unity and I'm going to tell you that I feel your pain and I want us to get out of the darkness and I want us to emerge better, brighter, hopeful for the future. Like all of the cheesy things that should make you feel like, yes, yes, let's do this. And it's, it could not be less effective. (laughs) Like the Republican response to it is like, go fuck yourself. They don't want that at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. On the social media thing, one dynamic I think that's pretty interesting is this idea of the pay for play aspect on social media where, I don't know if you saw this news yesterday, that people are going to start being able to charge for the super follow. (laughs) Right. And this just incredible uh, trend of, you know, of kind of you know, economic activity with things like Patreon and OnlyFans and like these, these subscription models for consuming content. And I think that that will play a part into this dynamic of how social media is able to be such a driving force for some of this ideology and polarization, because as social media changes and becomes more of a, um, economic, thing where it's pay for play and you're following certain news organizations you have to pay for it and you know it's 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 not this open source situation where it's all kind of free game um there might be a chance where the information is maybe kind of reeled back in a little bit and not not spreading in the same way that it is now maybe the 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 super tweets thing to me seems like it's going to be um taken advantage of by the right wing like they take advantage of everything yeah but uh, i want well, a lot of people are gonna make a lot of fucking money yeah sure i uh, but you're to I your point like right wing people will make a lot of money getting followers right to, right to post fringe ideas and then that money is gonna go towards something yeah it's probably not ideal but i i i could be way wrong about that like it might be it might be a great way to like pay creators for their good stuff. I will definitely not be doing it. I think that's it's just kind of weird. Like the idea of thinking like, ah, uh, this tweet is actually worth money. Right. <laughs> it's right. like psychotic to me. Like, like it's some sort of like cryptocurrency. Right. <laughs> um, but I also believe that uh, information, not that, tw- not that Twitter is equivalent to information, but like, it's just better when things are free because then more people can access it. And like, that should be the ultimate goal. Uh, if you have some sort of like incredible hot take on like an Avengers movie and you want to charge people for it and people want to pay for it, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Um, but I do have a feeling that like the Ben Shapiro's of the world are probably going to take advantage of the super tweets thing in yeah. their, like their right wing way with that. They are so good at and, the left has been unable to figure out that's true and yeah there's a lot of monetization happening in that whole world already as is too with people monetizing youtube channels and all this stuff on these super fringe ideas and these companies are doing you know a subpar job of kind of monitoring that i think they've gotten more and more active it's interesting because the idea of uh twitter every twitter is a video game and every tweet is is like can i go viral and it's either yes or no or some maybe sometimes in between uh and the people who are really good at it um whether they're doing it as a as a joke as a news item as an announcement as a uh viral video or they're ripping someone off whatever it is that's part of that game the tweets that go viral have value 
inherently baked into their numbers of how many people retweet it and like it or reply to it or whatever. If you're paying for tweets, those tweets are not going to go viral. They can't by definition. So it's going to be a weird way. I remember when Instagram was like experimenting with this idea of taking away the number of people who have liked something mm -hmm. and they they did that right like they, yeah, they tested it out in certain certain yeah geographic regions and that's like a, that's an incredible experiment to be like what is the value of this picture i'm looking at if i don't know how many people have liked this is it a good picture or a bad picture what do i think about that and that to me is excellent <laughs> because then you're judging something based solely on what it is not what other people think i admit there have been tweets i've seen uh that have like forty thousand retweets and i'll be like why i don't get this like I, I don't think this is that funny and then there are, are tweets that i think are like outrageous and they have like three retweets so yeah i don't think the you know the number is not always reflective of what it is but how are you going to value a tweet in a suit in a in a premium pay format whatever it is if the people who are viewing it and are are assigning that number quality are limited by who's paying it just seems like a kind of a weird way to to look at the whole thing yeah well it changes the dynamic of what social media is but that's kind of why i brought it up because maybe that's important you know maybe maybe it's important for us to kind of change the dynamic of social media because clearly social media has played such a huge part in this polarization yeah. that's happened and everyone loves to talk about it like oh, i watched the social dilemma and like you know totally open, <laughs> i watched the social phone. dilemma and then i, I tweeted everything. about it for it, two yeah. days <laughs> right right literally but if you, know, you if you pay if you how many followers do you have you have like 60 something thousand for uh i wish 40 like five or something like that 40, oh 5, still very good yes so if you did super tweets what do you think you could charge what would your what would the cam rate be well i think the i don't really understand exactly how the model works but i thought that it was a baseline 499 like i don't think they're oh. allowing you to charge like a scale okay. if you charge 499 how many people do you think would sign up probably in the like hundreds like oh not, that's good not, not a lot i mean maybe less that's pretty maybe good less though. i would think a hundred even. That's not bad. Yeah. I, I think that it, it reaches... $500. No, for sure. Well, I think that, you know, there's there's multiple conversations to be had on the super follow thing. Because I do think that when you think about arts and creative, right? Yeah. Uh, and even comedy and, That's and true. things you like that. You can offer special things it's, to... It's a really yeah. good thing. And I think that uh, actually something that could really benefit society is artistic people having more money. That's true, and, and then they can bet, and then they can say to the people who are paying for their tweets, like you get this first, and you right. like helped create this, right? But think about the best civilizations in the world, right? Artists were the core part of the best civilizations in the world. Interesting, and yeah, sure, yeah, they had a lot of, uh, you know, money. They were really important in the hierarchy of society. Yeah. And so, you know, those civilizations were more beautiful and, and probably a little bit better, you know? And yeah. so I, I don't think it's a bad thing for artists and creative people to be able to monetize what they're doing. Definitely. Uh, so yeah. on the arts side, I think the idea of a super follow or doing a Patreon page or something like that is cool. And I'm all about the independent grind. I was with a major label. I did two albums with a major label. That whole process sucked. Because what's happening in the news world that you live in or used to live in is, you know, what's happening now in the news world happened 10 years ago in the music industry. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Right. There was a systemic shift 
where yeah. there were there was about three years there between 2010 and 2013 mm-hmm. where uh, people weren't buying CDs anymore at physical stores, but there was no Spotify and there was no Apple Music and there was no streaming. And so record labels, these huge companies with you know billions of dollars balance sheets had no income coming in whatsoever. And their whole infrastructure was set up to distribute physical items to a physical store and sell it, right? Yeah. And they had to completely change their business model to digital. And it was, you know, at first it was the iTunes store and directly downloading stuff and putting the MP3 on your phone or your iPod, right? But even Uh that wasn't super monetizable. And it was only in 2014, 15 and beyond when streaming services, in particular Spotify, came about that record labels actually started to succeed again. So that shift that's happening in news right now already happened in in music and it was a shit show and I happened to get a record deal right in the middle of that shit show. And so I kind of saw that from a, from a major label level working at Atlantic records, working uh, with Atlantic records to do my first album. I saw how they didn't know how to address the change that was happening Mm. in just the economic model of the music business. And that so, is fascinating to me. Yeah, and and no, it's, did it's you get really screwed by that? Did it did it hurt you because you got the deal during it, or were you was it good because you got the deal before it was like catastrophic? You know, to me, it was kind of like going to college because I was eighteen. I got a record deal when I was eighteen, so yeah. I left high school and I signed a record deal, um, moved out to L.A., made part of the album in L.A., then moved back to Boston, finished the album, put it out, and I was working with some of the top people at the label, and they found my music off of a website called Datpiff, which if you if you know Datpiff, was like the place to get like free mixtapes back in the day in like <laughs> wow. 2010. Okay. And so I put out a mixtape on Datpiff when I was in high school and it just randomly kind of went viral. And so they what do, saw... What, count, what counts for viral in... It uh, had like 6,000 downloads in like the first hour. Wow. Which was, was crazy. I mean, so I was... So did you put your, like, your account, like, username on Datpiff or something? Do you have a page? How does that work? Yeah, so it's, you know, it was basically like a forum uh-huh. where you could upload mixtapes, and then there would be a front page of the best mixtapes of the day or the week, Wow, right? okay. And so if a mixtape got a certain amount of downloads, it reached, like, the top eight, you know, and they would chart the mixtapes and it was all free mixtapes. So it was a lot of like remixes. And uh-huh. This was how like a lot of hip hop music was, was coming out. How did yours get bumped up? Was it like someone would download it and then like upvote it or something? So, I mean, the way that it all happened is, you know, and this is how my career literally started. I kind of like stumbled into it is I just loved making music. I started actually recording my own music and I was putting it out and burning CDs and selling it to my friends at my high school. Then it became selling it around the towns around my town. And then it became this kind of regional Massachusetts thing. Then I started putting the music on YouTube and Facebook. And then the biggest thing at the time, people were were going on these blogs. And so it was all about the blogs back then because Facebook was cool, but it wasn't like super... It was for college kids, right? There wasn't a lot to do. Yeah, yeah. there wasn't even a lot to do on Facebook. You could post your photos Mm -hmm. and you could post status updates, Mm -hmm. but that was pretty much it. You could write on your wall. (laughs) Yeah, you could poke people, (laughs) you know. But so I started putting my music on YouTube and then basically emailing all these people that ran blogs and there was a blog called good music all day and bro bible and this was when like barstool sports started out like it was the the era of like blogs first getting like really popular wow and so 
couple of these blogs basically sponsored the mixtape and they had like oh, huge cool. amounts of listener or, or sorry readers and so when my mixtape dropped it was sponsored by this old blog called bro bible and that gave just a ton of eyes and ears onto it awesome and so immediately when it dropped it got like six thousand downloads right away that's so, so that funny man I popped me up to the charts on dat piff so I was on the front page of this like big music website at the time. And it was a payoff from like, you pounded the pavement, like selling your stuff. Yeah. For, I'm just imagining no, was, you as like, cool. a, it's like a, a old timey salesman, like knocking on old ladies doors and being like, um, would you like to buy a, a mixtape? Uh, no, literally. <laughs> so w w one of the things we did, I was, I was like 16, 17 years old. We burned 400 blank CDs. And then we printed Unlike out like little, gateway little covers. Unlike your gateway 2000. Literally. <laughs> On your and Dell. then we went to, I was in high school, we went to the middle school and we tried to sell mixtapes <laughs> to middle school kids. This is actually so then, the plot of The Wire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then the principal at the middle school came out, I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And, you know, obviously like the, you know, the, the mixtape was super inappropriate and, you know, all this stuff. We were trying to sell it to like 11 year olds. I was like, all right, well, that's probably not You're a like, idea. what, lady? I'm just trying to scam these kids. <laughs> yeah, like, come on. You know, shit. I'm just trying to get my music popping. Um, but yeah, no, so... Did so they, have, did they was, have, like, like portable CD players that you were... Uh, like, how did they listen to it? Put in their car? I guess they were too young to have a car. Yeah, I think I think people were using portable CD players still. Like or, disc or, man? Or you know what people were doing? They were, they were putting the discs in their computers. And then uploading and then putting them. it yeah. on their iTunes. Yeah, yeah. You Man, know. I used to do that, and then I would I would download shit off like Napster or LimeWire or Morpheus, whatever. And then I I I got a um a CD sticker printer, like a label printer, and so I would like I remember downloading Green Day albums and then like formatting them for a CDR, and then it came like the CD sticker thing came with like this little spindle where you just like smash it down on on the wow. sticker. And so I was like downloading like uh like an image of Green Day International Super Hits, printing it out, like trying to get it centered in Microsoft Paint or whatever, and then like smashing it down. And I remember I had like five or six of these. I was like, this is so janky. But like I put them in my car and I listen to them every day. <laughs> I I remember exactly what you're talking about. That little, con, that little device. That's so funny, man. <laughs> Whatever though. I was like, I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna support artists. I'm 13. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it was that was such a weird time for music, and people were uncomfortable with this idea that you could get music kind of for free. Yeah. You know, bands were trying to come out and say don't download our music on LimeWire or Napster. And then they looked like shit because everyone was like, well, why? Yeah. And so they, they, they eventually had to figure out how to monetize yeah. music. That is the news industry. In a problem. way. That's like the same thing. Right. When we started giving away information for free and then on the internet, because no one took the internet seriously in 1999. So it was like, sure, put your, right. put, put everything online. And then people got used to it. And so when you start charging money for it, they're like, no, <laughs> I've been getting this free for 15 years. Right. And well, that's kind of brings it brings it back full circle to the point that I'm trying to make is like on the one hand, the super follow idea, I think, is uh, a great thing for artists, creatives, whatever. Yeah. But I do think that there is, you know, something's got to give with social media. I think that it's so, you know, embedded in our day to day life. But take it up with the fucking people running it. They're the problem. Like Mark Zuckerberg for is sure. the problem. Jack Dorsey is the problem. Like yeah. what? 
man, I guess we're the problem too, because we keep feeding into it. Like I think Twitter should make a million changes, but I'm on it every day, like helping it thrive. Right. So that kind of right. sucks. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, you can't, you can't live without it. Right. Like, you know, right. I mean, they know that uh, we're like, this idea, the the social dome introduced this idea that's like if you're using this thing for free, you're the product. They're selling you to yeah. yourself. <laughs> right. Right. But so this dynamic of paying for access, I do think that that might lead to a different dynamic overall on social media. I think that there there might if be every, a world if a lot of people where, do it, yeah. Right. Because also, I mean, think about think about Instagram, right? Like I don't know how active you are on Instagram. I know you're active on Twitter, but when I post on Instagram now, nobody sees it. No, compared to when I used to post on Instagram, I would get you know a ton of people seeing it. It would come up relatively you know on everybody's feed. Mm. Now, if you post something, it's barely coming up on anyone's feed unless it meets a certain criteria or it gets a bunch of likes initially that you know get it in the algorithm. So it's, the algorithm judges you on instantaneous reception. Well, the thing about the algorithms is, is that none of us even know what the algorithm is judging because the algorithm is changing itself every single day. (laughs) That's really disturbing, obviously, but also, man, I I wish I were more intelligent on this topic because I was going to say like, TikTok has the best algorithm I've ever seen in my life. And I I can't, I I treat that thing like, I assume a meth head treats crystal meth. Like I really try to well no this is not an accurate analogy because i was gonna say i try to avoid it but like when i click on it literally 45 minutes will go by and i just have no idea what i watched yeah that algorithm knows me so well it knows exactly what i want it's like a combination of like the best people who do the like comedy of a person talking to themselves as two different characters whatever that's called right. um really uh really good reactions to like the clickbaity what's a video that lives in your head rent free and then like <laughs> like i fucking hate those like baity things but yeah. the reactions are great like the videos that oh, live so in people's good. head rent free are really funny so like there's a bunch of those I, I don't know. It just like, it knows all this stuff that I love. And like, I can't say, I don't, I don't want to stop giving you my information. Like you get me like, TikTok. well, there's like, something so there. like beautiful about like, just, I know, you know, and it's random. It has like the, the fun, like chat roulette option of like, I have no idea what I'm going to get. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's true. It's, it's, it's kind of a casino of content. Definitely. You know, Definitely. and it, it, TikTok is like a little slot machine. But I win every time because it knows that I don't like to lose. <laughs> right. <laughs> I figure that right. out. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, there's some things on there that like I was watching this thing the other day, uh, yesterday, that was um, I'll try to describe it in a way that people can search for it on Google and it'll probably come up in like a ripped Facebook video. Uh, it's a kid. He's like 18 or 19 and he has, you know, medium length hair kind of parted in the middle and his he wa- he's sitting at his computer and then the door opens and it's him, but he has a buzz cut and he's like, holy shit, what happened? And the kid at the door with the buzz cut is like, oh, you had a young life crisis and shaved your head. And so like, they're doing this, this thing that's like, no, I didn't want to do it. And then the kid with the long hair is like, but what can't you just like undo it? And the buzz cut kid is like, what are you talking about? And then 
instantly the buzz cut kid has long hair and the kid sitting down has the buzz cut and the whole thing is like then they they break the fourth wall and he's like wait no this is because you you shot this video like out of order and the kid's like okay i'm gonna go outside and, and we'll start it over so like the whole thing was scripted to like in this very specific way it right. was it was insanely brilliant it's like I started analyzing this thing. I was like, oh my God, this is everything I love. It's like time travel. <laughs> it's like great editing. It's really funny. Whole thing costs $0 to make. Probably took this kid like, I don't know, an hour and then like edited it and and cut just did jump cuts with like no fancy music or anything like that. I mean, how the fuck? There are industries out here spending thousands and thousands of dollars to do sketches and and like entertainment and big budget shit and graphics and it's like i don't know if i'll see anything funnier than that in like the next three weeks <laughs> well i mean you know spending time trying to trying to figure out the best way to deliver a joke and exactly you know, yeah you know it's incredibly structured but there's just nothing funnier than an organic thing yes, it's organic exactly that- some kid that you've never seen before came mm-hmm. up with, and it's just like, oh, I love that. Because and we, we want to see the underdog it. win. Yes, yeah. I love the underdog. I want to reward right. the shit out of that kid. I want him to get a bill. I want him to go viral on Twitter. I want, like, it. it's so satisfying when that happens. And it's like, why do I care about this? <laughs> right. But, you know, that's why I have a little bit of hope, because, you know, as, as shitty as the circumstances are in a lot of ways, um, I love that there's so many people that are coming around to the idea of being a creative themselves or putting themselves out there and figuring out a way to build a a brand of themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, and monetize it. And there's so much money to move around. And if we can take some of that money away from the (laughs) top, top people, right? It would be great if you could tax it, but that's probably not going to happen. Tax my tweets, Jack. It's probably not going to happen. So, you know, if we can just slowly start to like strip away some money from the top 1% by people going on OnlyFans and people getting super followed and, you know, all of this type of stuff. I see. I see that. I, th- I think that, uh, you know, more of us having economic prosperity, like I said before, leads to more opportunity, more education, more upward mobility, and less fringe ideas, less of a reason Mm -hmm. to go farther to the extreme because you're doing better in your life. So I'm just hopeful that these new platforms that allow people to be creative and and build a business, really, Mm -hmm. is going to positively impact us. And I don't think that's going to solve the whole problem. There's always going to be crazy people, but I just hope that that plays a part into it and I'm optimistic about it. I want to believe, Cam. I want to believe. <laughs> I will set aside my dark heart pessimism for the next 30 seconds and join you in a, <laughs> a, a moment of prayer and belief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, even even for, for you though, I feel like you were a guy who who came from traditional journalism Right. And now you've pivoted into this comedy realm and it's involved with news too and all all these things. But what was that transition like for you? Was it a leap of faith? Was it an aha moment that told you, I need to do this for myself? And, you know, what was that process like for you? The, the moment that I, I knew I had to leave journalism for my own, 
um, like, like to just, just comfort was the 20, was the 2016 campaign. Um, when, when you and I probably first started, uh, like talking, um, and I, I remember you, we were sitting in your apartment and you were like, oh yeah, that's the champagne that we like never drank, uh, from when we thought Hillary was going to win. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, and then there are, there are champagne bottles around the country that I think were probably sitting for four years and were cracked open three months ago. Um, but yeah, it was the 2016 campaign. I, I was covering it for a news organization and I hated it. I, I was simultaneously doing what I thought was like very fun, uh, videos for it, like news videos that were non traditional. Um, they were a little bit sketch based. They were informative and explanatory, but I knew this whole time, like we were kind of like messing around with the fun idea of Donald Trump and we knew he was going to lose. So it was like, well, we don't have to take this seriously. We can like futz around with these people and use them to our advantage and put them in videos and, and make content and all that stuff. And then they fucking won and none of those videos hold up. And like, what did, what did we do it for? I, I hate that I was even a part of it. And like, I'd like to think that I was far from, you know, very far from like the people who were the worst at making it possible that Trump was the nominee and then the president. But there we, I played a part in it and I hate that. And I feel like I, can never live that down. I am not trying to say like, I have a sacred responsibility. Like I was a video producer for Bloomberg news. Like I have no idea who saw these videos, probably very few people, but the fact that I was just like involved in it at all made me sick. And I realized that like, I can never be, I can never be a political journalist covering this, this shit because I, it, it wasn't appropriate. Like we did not treat him the way we should have treated him. And so that's why so that's why I left. And I feel like when I left, I could finally be um, honest about things. Like we saw the first twelve to eighteen months of the Trump administration when he was lying about everything. Like this never changed. But it was really hard in the news media to call him a liar, and it was hard to call things lies. They had to say things like false statements and. Uh, troubles with the truth and bending reality all these like weird euphemisms that like don't have the same punch and don't reinforce this narrative that like the president is a liar he is lying to you for the first three months he was going off i mean even it ended up being much longer but specifically for the first three months he was going off on this thing he called um spy gate uh, or or like obama gate and he was saying that yeah, obama yeah. Tap, tapped his wire he wiretapped me in trump tower this fucking bullshit and like Everyone, no, sorry, I shouldn't say everyone. That is not true. Uh, the White House press corps and some people more than others were taking this seriously, even though they knew it was fake. They knew there was nothing to it because, like, they could see through Donald Trump, but they had to play serious on camera. And be, and I remember these. Uh, they're called pool sprays when the the press pool is kind of allowed into the cabinet room after a meeting, and they had to ask Trump like two or three questions or whatever. And there are these reporters being like, "Mr. President, do you have any evidence that?" Obama wiretapped you and Trump would be like, Oh, it's all over the place. Like whatever he tapped me, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, well, where's the evidence? And then he would give his same bullshit answer. That's like, you ask, you look, you, this is the greatest uh, travesty that's ever happened to a president. And if you're being honest, if you're, uh, if your job is to be honest, you should just not cover that story because it's fucking bullshit, but they couldn't do that. They, it was so early in the administration that they were, it was like, how do, how are we supposed to treat this guy? And that was like a real crisis moment, uh, because it set up kind of everything else that happened. So anyway, 
for 12 months, they like couldn't call him a liar. 12 months, they couldn't call him a racist. Uh, there were all these things that were like, well, why can't they say this? And I felt after leaving journalism, I was like, I can say it because I won't be fired for it. And that's a luxury. And it sucks that there are great people kind of like trapped in this world of not being able to say what's really happening because if you were to call Trump racist and you're a journalist, then the right wing comes after you. And they're like, this person is biased when really they're just stating a fact. And that it happened. It happened to people. That was what like, that was what kind of like broke my sense of like, this isn't, I don't want to be this person. Uh, Maybe I'm not a good reporter. Maybe I'm not a good producer, but I can't be that person. So making the transition to comedy was less about being funny Uh, and more about being honest and like having the opportunity to be honest, which is refreshing. And I don't know, it just, it just felt right. Um, And it's something that I want for literally everybody. (laughs) Like I just want honesty all the time. If we had good faith, if we had honesty, we would have so few problems with like the way that we engage in ideas. Excuse me. We could have real conversations about the Green New Deal and climate change, uh, real conversations about the minimum wage, real conversations about Neera Tandon and her tweets, rather than this bad faith garbage that's like, well, Republicans uh, have raised concerns about Neera Tandon's previous mean tweets. Like, they haven't raised shit. They're trolling you. They don't care. They're using this as an excuse. For four years, they pretended Donald Trump didn't have a Twitter feed. And now all of a sudden, they're like, archaeologists going back through Neera Tandon's tweets. That's bad faith. And the response to bad faith should not just be to say, you know, it's a little weird that they didn't feel this way about Donald Trump. It should be to cover what they're currently saying as bullshit and not cover it at all if you know it's bullshit. So as a a journalist can't say that, and a journalist may not believe that, but I do. And if I were still in journalism, I, I it just it wouldn't be a fit. It would be a, a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the incentives seem to be very misaligned. I mean, of course, you have an ethical responsibility as a journalist to be unbiased, but you also have an ethical responsibility to be factual, right? And to... For sure. And and maybe you should have a ethical responsibility to uh, tell, you know, or, you know, report on stories that are for the benefit of society to know not sure. for yeah. the company that you work for to make more money, right? But well, I don't news, know. News organizations are private companies. That's kind of right. That might that you know that is part of the problem of the the overall capitalist structure of the news industry is that they are profit making businesses. They but have to make money, so or else they is, wouldn't have. So is medicine, though, right? Like so, like you know, uh, hospitals mm-hmm. and you know, doctors are private industry, but they have ethical and legal responsibilities not to, you know, do surgeries when they're not needed and to not do harm under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so you don't see surgeons doing, well, you know, maybe you do, especially out here in Los Angeles, but you don't see surgeons doing unnecessary surgeries to make profit, right. you know? And so... it's Yeah, I, I, to- I totally get that. It's, it's like applying that to the news industry is too idealistic because there it it almost feels like the concern for being uh like the gatekeepers of what's true and what's not is is too 
they, I, I truly believe that journalists want to do that. I don't think, I don't think anyone in journalism is, um, is, is has like the, the bad intent to poison the well. I think they're just handcuffed by this horrible Republican party. That's weaponized their false neutrality, which isn't even their fault. It's like the industry has this thing, this norm <laughs> that applied in 2010, 2012, 2014, even that was like, you have to get one side, you have to get the other side, you know, and we'll let the viewers decide. And then once Trump was just like, um, I'm going to lie about everything. And Republicans were like, okay, fine, we'll do that. It broke that model. So it's, 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 it's simultaneously complex and very simple, if that makes sense. Um, but people were lying, you know, Colin Powell went to the United Nations and lied about, you know, there being weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in 2000, right. but we just didn't have, you know, social media to be just as on top of it. As well, that's we are true. Now. And the, and the concept, and then the reason you know about that is because it was in the news so much. And though there were things of that magnitude that definitely, and thankfully linger the weapons of mass destruction. We all know that that was a lie that we went to war on. Um, and, and Judith Miller, who was duped at, uh, at the New York times by sources who wanted her to print false claims of weapons of mass destruction. She got banished and she's on Fox news now, at least last I checked, she was, those were corrective steps. Um, and I think the, the key difference between now and then is that when that happened, it was not a pattern of bad faith. It was enough to to raise our flags and be like, hold on, like let's be extra skeptical of everything. Let's double check, uh, triple check these sources, like whatever whatever happens at that level of like national security sources and and approving them and all that stuff. Let's go back and be real sure what we're doing here. That is different than. Trump being like uh, windmills cause cancer and um, and and Christian Gillibrand uh, begged me for a job or begged me for donations on her knees like all this disgusting shit that's not true every day so when it starts happening uh, on almost an hourly basis and when the lies become the default when you when when the president says something and you know it's a lie or at least your suspicion is it's a lie your entire uh, foundation of how you cover him should shift and it should be, okay, can he prove he's telling the truth? And if not, we're not going to cover this, but that didn't happen. And so that is the, whereas with, with Bush, yeah, it was a pretty big lie about weapons of mass destruction that led to a lot of people dying. It's hard to argue that every day Bush was telling different lies uh, as, as fast as he breathed. Um, You could argue that, the the entire war in Iraq was just full of lies. And I, I obviously believe that. Um, and I think a lot of coverage did reflect that when it was going on. But it's different because bad faith was not pervasive then, whereas now it is the operating standard of one party. And that just requires a different approach. And I don't, I can't even claim to know what that approach is. It's just like uncharted territory. It's... It's weird to have a, uh, a free press operating with a party that's fascist and giving the fascist party the same benefits that you give the party that's democratic. That doesn't make sense on its face, but it's like the only thing we know how to do, so we have to keep doing it. It's just very strange. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really true. I, mean, I, I do love the idea that you wrote about um, back in 
October or, or November, maybe it was in the uh, Washington Post, the op-ed that you wrote about just kind of a simple test. Oh, of, yeah. yeah. You know, are you lying and blatantly, or, or, you know, can you answer this specific question that determines whether or not you are lying or not? And if yeah. you can't, then you're not coming on the show. Just you're not say, getting a chance to say, talk. If you can't say Biden won, what are you doing here? And why are we having you on? I have, I still have not heard a great response to that other than, well, we have to put Republicans on TV. Yeah, I get that. But like, can we at least get a little bit deeper here? But right. no, one, right. I don't, I don't, I clearly that message has not landed. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you keep, you keep saying it long enough. Sometimes people listen, you know, if I get it, if I do it in a super tweet and people pay me for it, then I'll be happy. <laughs> right. Like I really thought you were going to get, you know, the, like I think one of the first things you really started to push was something about Sean Spicer and I was really rooting for you. I was like, <laughs> like you know, Oh my God. So just, you know, keep the faith, man. Just keep, just keep pushing. Honestly, because thinking I, I about think Sean that the stuff Spicer that you're doing. I appreciate that. But like the fact that you brought up Sean Spicer, I'm like, okay, that guy was on Dancing with the Stars. Like what the fuck happened to that guy? Like, oh my God, it sends me into a tailspin. Simpler <laughs> times, dude. Simpler, simpler times. When that was all you had to worry about, I mean, shit. I know. <laughs> I really appreciate having this conversation though. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's opened my mind up and, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, like I said, I'm optimistic that we can make some changes, and I think conversations like this help us think through it a little bit more, and maybe that'll motivate some people to make some changes, and, you know, sometimes it's a very slow, arduous process, but, I mean, what's, you know, what's the other option, right? I hear you. I definitely hear you. And thanks for talking to me about all this weird stuff, and it's it feels good to talk to another person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that, you know that's the main main thing is is that it's just fun to talk to another human being these days but we're gonna start doing these in person too so you know when things are back to normal if you're out in la we'll definitely do another one in person post covid oh yeah we'll do it right we're gonna oh, get a yeah. whole studio built out and it'll be a lot of fun but but yeah man um i appreciate you coming on and just appreciate uh Taking the time, man. Definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. I hope everything's good out in LA, but yeah, as soon as we're allowed to get on an airplane again, I'll be there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Matt Negrin, follow him on Twitter. You will not regret it. <laughs> Pay me $4.99 per tweet on Twitter. Yeah, super follow coming soon. <laughs> this is the Cam Eakin Show. We're out of here. Peace. <laughs>